you would tonight, turn with me once again to the book of Jude in this series. Again, we're going very slowly through this book. We looked at one verse last week. We look at one verse this week, a reminder of the context. The context of verse 6 tonight is a reminder that Jude is warning the people, both in his day and up to our day, that there will be those who creep into churches unnoticed, who are not really believers, but who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we still ask these questions, don't we? We ask, if you remember in history many years ago now, of the church that fell prey to Jim Jones. You ask, how in the world could a church fall prey to such a horrible, evil teaching or teacher? Well, these folks did not start out with the evil they ended up portraying. They began by creeping in unnoticed. They began by having at least a veneer of holiness or spirituality. And yet we are reminded by the examples, first the example last week, of those who would be destroyed in the desert, those who were saved by the Lord, from the clutches of slavery in Egypt, but yet failed to believe in him, this warning of unbelief that there were those who were destroyed in the desert. Tonight, we look at those who were unsatisfied from a fairly unusual realm. That is not mankind, but angels. For all along as I read just this verse, we will refer to other scriptures throughout this particular sermon. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, that is God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. As we consider this verse and the context and the scriptures that support it, let us ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Father, grant this, your word, by the power of your spirit, to impact us, that we might know the truth, and that we might apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray, especially with the danger of looking at one verse, I pray that the danger of straying from or misunderstanding or misinterpreting your word would not take place from my mouth or from our hearts. I pray that if this takes place, that you will remove these words, that they might not be heard from again. I pray for your grace to understand and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when it comes to angels, we ask silly questions. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? How ridiculous. Why would we even want to know? And is it really true that we should incorporate the spiritual with the physical in such a way? Then we also have scriptural verses or passages. One of them tells us that when we entertain strangers, we might actually entertain angels unawares. How could that be? It also tells us that Satan, one of the fallen, fallen angels, the great enemy of the people of God that he can be so deceptive that he can appear and masquerade as an angel of light. Now, of course, there was much early Jewish fascination with angels. 
And you see it particularly in the Apocrypha, uh, that is, books that were not canonical, they were not scriptural or treated as scripture by the Jews or the early church, but they were written mostly between the Old and New Testaments, that 400-year period of silence between Malachi and the Gospels. And books like the Book of Enoch describe all kinds of things about angels, and Jude actually, in verses 14 and 15 of his letter, actually seems to quote from the Book of Enoch. There's a fascination so much so about about angels among Jewish people and early believers that the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, in addressing that church, he warns them against what he calls asceticism and angel worship. And you know today, we still have a fascination with angels, don't we? In fact, there is such a fascination about angels that particularly new age Religion focuses primarily on the spiritual realm. So much so that it begins to be so focused on angels that we lose sight of Christ and the gospel and all those things. But in this passage, we're reminded that though there are many angels that serve the Lord faithfully, there are some angels that lusted after a place that they could not have. They had a refusal to keep their own authority, a refusal to keep their own place, and a refusal to keep their own contentment. And as Jude describes these things about these angels, it's all in the context of warning the church, that is, those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. These individuals are given this warning that just like these angels fell in this sense, so too we should be aware that we are in danger of refusing to keep these same things. First of all, a refusal to keep their own authority. Look at the first phrase of this verse. These angels did not stay within their own position of authority. Now, how do angels have authority? Well, the word angel in Hebrew is actually the word messenger. So these are spiritual beings who are God's messengers and God's servants. And when they are sent into the world to address human beings, as they so often did, particularly in the Old Testament, as well as the early Gospels announcing the birth of Christ, announcing the resurrection of Christ, and so forth, they are given the authority of God's word to tell to the people. In certain circumstances, we're also told behind the scenes that they are given the authority to help or to intervene by God's design in the affairs of the world. But it is always under the authority of God himself. They cannot act on their own authority. They can do nothing apart from God and his sovereignty. And so it is that their calling is, as angels, to be messengers of God's design. Think of what authority that is. Can you imagine having access to the throne room of God in all of his glory, having Myriads and myriads of these angelic beings who at different points in history are told to proclaim God's truth, to warn God's people, or even to act on his behalf. 
And yet we're told that some of these angels did not stay or keep their own authority. Now again, this verse is written so that we can see how it might apply to believers in the church. So what are what is the authority of believers? Well, first of all, they are to be image bearers of the Lord. Just as all human beings were created in the image of God, we are created to reflect God's glory. So our calling, in that sense, our authority to the world, particularly as believers who have been cleansed from our sin, is now for the first time in our lives, once we have received the blood of Christ by faith, once we have been cleansed from our sins, then we can begin to reflect God's glory, be the light to the world in Christ, and be those who are called to be the salt of the earth, that is, to prevent it from further decay. So these great callings, not only to do these things, but to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples, this has tremendous authority interwoven in the life of the believer. But what happens if we reject our calling in order to do something else? Well, this is what this verse is addressing. You see, these angels were not only rejecting their calling, they were rejecting God's creation. You see, God is described in Scripture as the potter, isn't he? When it comes to human beings, he describes, or Isaiah in particular describes God as the potter who makes these pots for whatever use he has designed them to be used for. And assumedly, God has done this with all of his creation. All of his creation was designed to glorify him. The angels were designed to glorify him by their service to him. Human beings were made, created, with the design that they would reflect God's glory back to him in everything they did and how they lived. This is their calling according to God's created order and the authority that they have in the world. Now this weekend, I was made aware and I was kind of reading a little bit about it. This weekend, a sold-out, Bible-ripping, flag-burning mob of conventioneers descended on Boston for this year's SatanCon. Deliberately rejecting any perceived authority by the God of the Bible, their opening ceremony was the flag-burning and the Bible-ripping. They defied their creator with the intent to recruit and garner attention for their so-called Satan worship. But they're being very religious in the ways that they are doing so. All created beings are in danger of rebelling against God. We in the church tend to look at that kind of convention taking place in our country and look at the decadence and the downfall of our country rather than understanding every group of people is in danger of falling prey to rejecting the authority of the creator God. Even the church is open to the temptation to rebel against the authority that God has given them, seeking to gain authority in places that they do not have, or in seeking to advance the kingdom by their own efforts rather than the creator. 
You see, in this, they refuse not only to keep their own authority, they refuse to keep their own place. Notice the next phrase of verse 6 in Jude. But left their proper dwelling. Now, what is their dwelling place? In one sense, we understand angels have a heavenly dwelling. Their dwelling place is at the whim of God. In other words, they're around the throne of God, and when God tells them to go, they will go and do whatever he has told them to do, and they will come back awaiting their next order while they're seeking to glorify and praise him and sing wonderful things to him. This is their heavenly dwelling. These angels, however, refused the authority and the calling that God had placed them in. And so in that sense, they left their proper dwelling in order to gain notoriety for themselves. Now again, how does this apply to the church? How can Jude say this is a warning to us by showing this example of angels who have refused to keep their dwelling place? Well, what is the dwelling place of believers right now? It's the church. And yet there is a great movement within our country and within our culture to completely reject the church. When people reject the church, what are they doing? They're rejecting the place that God has for them. You see, Jesus, as we see in the scripture, he died on the cross for believers, and we're told that he died because he loved the church. That is, he describes the church, Paul does, describes the church of Jesus Christ as his bride, and how he loved her and gave himself for her. And we husbands are to love our wives as God has loved the church, as Christ in particular has loved the church. Believers so often become so enamored with their own ability to believe in the gospel that they begin to focus primarily on themselves as opposed to the people of God. And so they reject the dwelling that God has for us in this particular age, that is, in the people and with the people of God, the church. To reject the church is to reject several other things. To reject the church is to reject worship. This is one of the primary things that all believers are asked to do by the Lord, to worship God and him only, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we don't do that together with the church, we're missing commands that God has made. Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another all the more until that day approaches. To reject corporate worship is to reject God's design for believers. Not only do we reject worship, we also reject accountability. Why does God put us in a church? Because it is so practical. God knows that we are prone and have a tendency to fall, to sin, to wander, Whether we look at the hymn writer's words or we look at the scripture's words, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even Paul, that great apostle, says every day, I struggle with doing the things I know I should do, but doing the things I want to do. We need the accountability of one another. We need the accountability of one another so that when someone says, hey, I haven't seen you in church, 
for several weeks, are you okay? It's a reminder that we are together to glorify God. The accountability of someone who's struggling in temptation or sin to tell someone else, hey, help me, help bear that burden for me, as scripture tells us to do. We can't do that unless we are a part of the people of God. But it's not only the accountability of one another, it's the accountability of God himself. The accountability of God. Jesus says he is the head of the church. We're reminded that God is the king. We're reminded that the spirit is the one who works in us. The triune God holds us accountable, convicting us of sin, helping us to proclaim the wonderful truths of the gospel. And the accountability here is first of God and then of one another. But you see, if we refuse to keep our own place, we not only reject worship and accountability, we reject authority itself. Every person who's a member of our church has made a vow. A vow to submit to the authority that God has placed in this church. It's not because those authorities, those elders and deacons, whether the teaching elder or ruling elders, it doesn't mean that those officers are perfect. It doesn't mean that they have authority on their own. It just is a recognition that God has placed them in that position to have authority. And even though sometimes they get the authority wrong because they're imperfect, yet it's real authority. So much so that Jesus himself says in this authority, what you bind on earth I will bind in heaven, what you loose on earth I will loose in heaven. It's real authority. And so there is authority to church leadership those that God has placed in us to teach us and to, make, uh, to, to disciple us. But not only church leadership, but primarily in that leadership and in the church is God's word. You see, if we reject the idea of worshiping together, if we reject basic biblical morality, if we reject the doctrines of scripture, we are not rejecting just the teaching of man. We're teaching, we're rejecting God's word. I was just perusing not too long ago an article that I saw about someone who wanted to send their eight-year-old to a summer camp. They were traveling away from home, and they found themselves just in our neighboring state here of North Carolina. Because they were traveling away, they wanted to do some research on the camps that were in the area so that their eight-year-old, despite being around strangers, would have a safe place to be. So they found a church camp. That church camp in Elk Banner, North Carolina, by Holston Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, was advertising a welcoming, safe atmosphere. And all looked good about this particular camp, Holston Camp, until they found one of their inclusive policies. Remember, we're a Presbyterian church. We're not a PCUSA church. We're a PCA church, but it bears the name Presbyterian. And in this document of inclusivity, it says they welcomed all campers and were particularly interested in affirming any LGBTQ participants. Not only that, but they allowed the children to decide what they would do as far as going to which bathroom they went, how to dress for swimming, and how to sleep in the cabins. 
Not only this, but there was actually material to suggest that they allowed their counselors who were living and uh, teaching the children to counsel their children of the gender they identified with. Tell me that's a good idea for adults or young people to counsel minor children up to the age of 18, as young as 8 at least, in those circumstances. Why is that church and that presbytery, that camp, why are they promoting these things when it is against God's word and against the leadership that should be structured in their church? Why are they not holding one another accountable to basic morality that not only has been in the times of the church and scriptures, but has been in almost every generation, in almost every culture in the history of the world? Because they refuse to keep their place. There are consequences to rebelling against God's created order and the place of which God made for us. You see, God, when he told us and made us together to be those bearing his image, it says in the same passage they were made male and female. One of the ways in in which we reflect God's created order is in the way in which he has made us by our sex. And yet we have by our own refusal to keep our own place. There are even churches who have fallen prey to this idea that they can cross the lines and come into a place of disorder and a place where they do not belong. But not only did these angels reflect to keep their own authority and to keep their own place, they actually were doing this because they refused to keep their own contentment. It says he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Why in the world did these angels, who had everything, created in wonderful glory, being around God himself in all his wonder and awe and glory, being able to proclaim the the messages that God sent to his people, why would they rebel? Because they were not content. Now, who is it that he is actually referring to when it comes to these angels? Now, there are some who would say, well, this is where we read in Scripture where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall down like lightning from heaven. And that could be the case. Although it seems to be in the early church because of the fascination of angels and because of the knowledge of some of these apocryphal books that that perhaps in this particular case, he is referring especially to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you would like to turn there, this particularly uh, fits the context in which this particular letter seems to address very clearly sexual immorality. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we read this. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
Now, I tend to think that this particular passage has particularly to do with unbelievers and believers. However, the early church certainly had a group, particularly of Jewish scholars, who felt that this passage was talking about the sons of God being angels who came down and had physical relationships with human beings. But the understanding of this text is this. Whatever the case was, whether angels or unbelievers or people out of their place, however it worked, they were in rebellion. In fact, they were in rebellion so much so that this is the lead up for God destroying the earth by a great flood. The great diluvian judgment of God. And so this is a reminder when people leave the place that God created them to be and cross the boundaries that God has set for them, leaving their place in which they were to be in God's design, there will be judgment. If that's not enough, these folks leaving their place in order to gain posterity for themselves in order to gain notoriety and perhaps in order to gain worship of those on the earth, perhaps more striking is the passage we read earlier this evening. Steve read from Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 12 through 19. It speaks particularly of this king of Tyre and yet as he rejects the king of Tyre, and calls judgment upon him. In this passage, we find that God is not just talking about a physical and literal king of Tyre, because he says in those first few verses, he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. He's actually referring here to Satan. He's saying, you were beautiful. I created you the most beautiful of all beings. He says you were an anointed guardian cherub. In other words, you were there in the throne room with me. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in your ways. But then unrighteousness found you. For whatever reason, this most beautiful of all God's creations. In verse 17, it says your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. You see the great sin that's involved here with discontentment and the great sin of those who would reject the authority that God has given them to cross the bounds into taking the authority for themselves in taking a place that they did not belong is the sin of pride. There's always more, isn't there? There's more power. There's more influence. There's greater reputation. For a church family, sometimes they want more money for a bigger budget. Sometimes they want more programs in order to please people that come to their church. They want more people in their church so that they can gain a greater reputation in their community. They want more influential people to come so that they can see how wonderful these people are who are great contributors to the community. They want more and more and more pastors and leaders and teachers that might creep in unnoticed with a veneer of righteousness and morality will come in for their own benefit and gain, seeking to gain money and possessions, seeking to gain power and influence 
thinking they are above the law themselves and therefore the law of morality itself does not apply to them. This is what happens in discontentment. We see this in scripture, in the life of Solomon. Given everything his heart desired, and yet by the end of the life we wonder if we're going to see him in heaven. It happened with Adam and Eve, given this wonderful garden where God was walking with them in the cool of the evening, given every fruit to eat, a place of peace and prosperity, real shalom in the Jewish definition of the word. And yet when it came down to it, and they were tempted by the devil, then Eve, as she looked at the fruit, she saw that it looked good and she wanted it, despite God's forbidding command. And then in the world around us, like men like Nebuchadnezzar, who had a wonderful, great kingdom. Yes, it was ruthless. No, he was not the nicest guy. But once he got such a powerful kingdom, what did he want? He wanted more and more, even assuming to himself the things that belong to God. And we do this in the church. I think sometimes that a lot of churches are their own little kingdoms, aren't they? We want what we want. We want our doctrine, our theology to be conquering all the others. We want our ways of doing things to be shown to be better than everybody else. We want our numbers, our influence, all of those things to show the world that we're the best church in the land. But what does God call us to be and to do? He calls us to be a part of his kingdom, not our kingdom. You see, when he says here, Jude does, in this verse that we've been reading over and over again, he says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. What is the proper dwelling of the church? The proper dwelling of the church is to be in the world but not of the world. The proper dwelling of the church is to tell people the gospel, but not only to tell people the gospel but to live out the gospel in our lives. The proper place of the church is to make disciples, not make disciples of ourselves, but to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When we fail in those areas, what happens? We fall under the judgment that the angels fell under. Here's the judgment. He has kept them in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The result of a refusal to be content to keep ourselves in the authority and place and contentment in which God has placed us is to find ourselves in judgment. Jude is much like the letter that Peter writes, his second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, he writes the, about the same circumstances. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll look at next week, to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is what these angels were doing, despising authority. And we're going to see particularly how they fit into next week's lesson about Sodom and Gomorrah going after the lust of the world. But you know, as we look at this, there's one important distinction that we see here between men and angels, and that's this. God chose not to redeem any angels. There's no hope for them. If they have fallen, they remain under imprisonment by God. Now, for some reason, he has allowed them some latitude that Satan himself can deceive individuals and his minions can cause all kinds of problems. They did in the life of Jesus, demon-possessed people, whatever. But God chose not to redeem them. Their punishment will never be lifted. But God has chosen to redeem a remnant of mankind. That's why he inspired the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, to write a letter like this. It's not just to say, you will be judged for your unworthiness. You will be judged for rejecting your authority and place and contentment. But it's a warning from Jude intended to lead the church to stand strong in their calling under the authority of God's word. And if they don't, to repent. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not for angels who have fallen. The gospel is for the people of God whom he calls from darkness into light and the people of God who struggle with temptation. He is calling them to repent. You see, the siren call of discontent is so very strong. Yet by God's grace... This warning to the unsatisfied will bring them back in repentance and will cause the faithful to stand and to withstand the enemy. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we are so easily unsatisfied with our calling and we want more. We are so easily unsatisfied with our place. As human beings designed and created by you according to the created order to glorify you and to please you, Lord, we so often want to please ourselves. And Lord, finally, we are so discontent because so often we are just plain unsatisfied. Lord, give us the great jewel of Christian contentment by your spirit by your work in us, as the Puritan who wrote that wonderful book, the jewel of Christian contentment reminds us, Lord, help us to be content in humility in the place that you have called us so that we might glorify you both now in the day of judgment and through all eternity. We pray these things in